Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. We are going through the Torah reading called uh, Vayelach, Deuteronomy 31. And if uh, you want to see all the notes that we have on this, because we're not covering any of this particular section, we're going to be focusing it all on the uh, alternative readings here today. So you want to see 15 years of past studies on this, you can find them at talel.info slash p52. That's parasha 52. Halal.info slash p52. So these are some high points that we're going to be uh, taking a look at just from the standpoint of this particular reading as a launching point to go into the rest of the reading. So we see the, the holy handoff between Moshe and uh, Yehoshua there, and it's a good reminder that you see throughout Israel's history, and we see in the history of all people, that you'll have human leaders will come and go, and there'll be some good, some bad, but throughout all of it, no matter what, quote, administration, unquote, is in charge at any given point in time, that what is dependable is the rock. The rock of Israel is the one who's dependable. We see that from those who are um, personally, who are personally in exile among the patriarchs, such as Yosef, there in Egypt, and you see that with uh, Daniel when he was there in Babylon and uh, Medo-Persia. So they could depend upon the rock that did not move, no matter what moved around them. So you see that in their character. Their character was dependable. Yosef was dependable. Potiphar could depend on him. Pharaoh could depend on him. Daniel was dependable. So Nebuchadnezzar could depend on him, and Darius could depend on him. So thus, both of them held extremely high office when they were slaves, captives, uh, those who were subjugated. Yet the character of them and the hand of the Lord put them into positions of great responsibility and also great favor. And when we talk about the rock, it's one of those things that we can see that what we build our house upon, just as Yeshua told the parable about building your house upon the rock versus building it on the sand. Building on the sand is, we we call that today, building your life upon an opinion pole. So, or you could say like just wetting your finger and sticking it up, finding out which way the wind's blowing and then going in that direction. That's not the way to live your life. Yes. Regarding that topic, um, the whole process of, you know, the pandemic stuff to hit, it showed how sandy much most people's foundations actually are. Yes. Um, and that was quite telling that, that, so we think our foundations are strong, our routines are consistent, we do the same yes. thing all the time, nothing changes. And something as simple as, oh, we might get sick, 
and then all the rules change, everything shifts about, and we realize, <laughs> wait a minute, my world is not as structured as it was supposed to be, or as what I built it to be. It's right. fascinating to see how how heavy, the, how, how easily, sorry, the foundations that you are dependent upon move, and yes. they're just they crumble. Like what? What? How? These were strong things, and they turn out they're not strong at all. There's nothing to them. Right, and that's one of the challenging things that we have here related with the uh, you call it mental illness, behavioral challenges. Just it's another word for really becoming unmoored. You're lost your 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 hold on reality and what you thought was that which is dependable. So thus, going to the parable of building your house upon a rock or building it upon sand, which one is going to move and which one will not? So we talked um last time about the things that last, that actually lead to life, may be things that in the short period of time may look like they just lead to death and to stuff that will just not thrive, not survive. It's not the profitable way to go. It's one of the, the strange things that you see in Ecclesiastes where it's talking about, oh, all this is vanity or things that are just wind it's nothing no substance to it but eventually in the middle of it you see that it makes a very interesting observation that even if the righteous man goes down that is the better way to go in the long term that even if the righteous man fails that quote failure is actually success long term and that brings back to the picture of what is actually dependable, what is actually real. It's, it's kind of funny, the, the kind of catch word today, those are supposed to be their, they talk, people talk about in the vernacular of the real ones. Well, those are supposed to be their close friends or whatever, but their real ones oftentimes tend out not to be so real. When adversity hits or suddenly your popularity falls or something, then they find someone else who becomes their real one. And that real connection is not so real. It ends up being quite fake and uh, vacuous. And one of the things we also get out of Vayelach is this admonition that we saw near the beginning of the book to hear every word that proceeds from the mouth of God often. And we hear it, we do it, we ponder it, and we also guard it and protect it. And one of the things that we've talked about, about spiritual gravity, it's often called the flesh. You hear that in the apostolic writings, the New Testament, they'll talk about the flesh. Paul's writings talks a lot about the flesh. But really, it is about spiritual gravity. And we see here at the end of this that the truism of just like the, you could say, the consequences of the, the laws of thermodynamics is that things will tend to go from order to disorder. They'll go from heat to cold. So 
you know a truism is that you just you leave your dinner out on the table and it was cold it just doesn't suddenly get hot no if it starts out hot it will do what get cold likewise with our spiritual lives we can start out hot and go cold one of the admonitions to the seven congregations in revelation one of them says hey i wish to laodicea i wish you were either hot or cold because then it's very clear where you are this lukewarm thing where you're neither hot nor cold you are not only doing a disservice to yourself but also to other people as we discussed that at length because what you end up doing is <laughs> when we talk about thermodynamics what happens to something that is colder than something that is hot yes you reach equilibrium you have the heat flow to the thing that's cooler so if you are lukewarm and you're around people that are hot <laughs> you will warm up but you also what pull the heat out of everybody else so likewise if you are a lukewarm in your belief toward god you're 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 like neither an atheist nor one who is just a total believer and totally dependent and totally trusting upon god those who are around you who are trusting in god what then happens over time if they don't watch themselves then their fervent passion their fervent trust their cleaving to god will get sucked out if they don't watch it yes that you know well i'm not you personally but i've noticed people and i do it too at times i'm sure we all do we're humans but um if you're around a group of people that uh it's very easy to join in yes whatever group you're in it's a we call it peer pressure it's not peer pressure it's more of just enjoying and 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 participating in life and in talking and whatever it's easy to migrate one. So if you start surrounding yourself with your people of particular persuasion, of viewpoint, it'll always go that way. And then you can toggle. You can swap. Well, I have my group of friends on my left-hand side, but this one on my right-hand side. I jump over. Now I'm the opposite way. You're, then you yourself are a wishy-washy, non, non, non-foundation-based person. You just move to whatever is convenient at the moment in time. Yes, you end up becoming a a chameleon, so people may not know what, quote, color you actually are. You just, you shift colors here. On one situation, you shift colors there. I remember in, in, uh, in high school, I was, I was a masterful chameleon. I had Mormon friends. I had stoner friends. I had... Um, Music friends, which tended to gravitate more towards the stoner side. <laughs> then I had music friends who gravitated toward the school band side. So the thing was, is that uh, over time, I fooled myself into thinking, oh, well, I can just be that resolute rock that no matter if I'm with the stoners or with the Mormons or with the, the, the good musicians or the bad musicians, then I could just be whoever I was. But over time, I realized that you know, I tended to gravitate toward whatever group I was in. And that became quite evident when I had the, the brilliant idea of, hey, let's have a get-together with all of my friends. 
Yes. Uh, I remember we had scheduled this thing at a local park and came together and uh, the friends, uh, the Mormons didn't know what to do. And then uh, the stoners didn't know what to do with the Mormons. And I realized it just, they did not work together. And the worst situation was then beyond that, if I didn't learn my lesson then, I learned it at my 16th birthday party where I had the the, the brilliant idea that I was going to do it up well. So I decided that I was going to have my band play some songs for a group of people. So um, the problem was is that my band never actually came together because it was composed of people from different groups and could never actually get together. So we never actually practiced much at all. And when it came down time to play, uh, the person who was supposed to sing decided he couldn't sing and a stage fright and didn't sing. So, but then someone else decided, hey, I can get some people to show up. Well, I should have realized that his friends were all the stoners and that I invited mostly Mormons. So... The stoners showed up first, dropping off their kids and about the place. And then the families were dropping off their kids. Uh, the Mormon families were dropping off their kids. So they come up with their minivans and they pull up to this place and they see the people hanging around outside and then they kept going. <laughs> yes, it was, it was uh, definitely... Definitely not a good thing, but what, what one of those things end, eventually ended up cementing in that um, you really can't be a chameleon in life because uh, you will lose track of what, quote, color you are over time. So that's what a part of the character is. But one of the last little things here when it talks about when you get knocked down, get up again. And when you get up again, realize why you got knocked down the first time and what that lesson was. Learn the lesson. And especially when you're talking about getting back up again on the road for, toward the kingdom of God, to realize the great mercy that's been shown in the Lord putting you back on the path and then to move on. But a part of that mercy of God is that we have an advocate who speaks on our behalf. We're getting ready to celebrate that with the annual memorial of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, or that's a you know, picture of this one, this advocate who goes in for our behalf. You know, the, the pattern that was shown to Moshe on the mountain of the high priest as the advocate. And then you see the, the letter to the Hebrews brings it out further that, you know, well, the kal v'chomer, the light and heavy. So if the high priest is a type, a pattern of this great advocate, the one who was going to uh, work for you, to represent you, to take in this blood of the covering of the whole congregation in, then how much more is then the, the Mashiach 
going to fill that role. So that's one of the, the great celebrations that we have here of Yom Kippur coming up and the time in between the great calling to turn back there that we celebrate with Yom Turah or the day of blowing trumpets and Yom Kippur is that this is a calling out. It's a part of mercy. Yes, it's also talking about judgment, but <laughs> kind of like you see represented there in the Gospel of John, that a part of the light coming into the world is to do what? What's more simply about light? Shine? So there is a distinction between light and not light. We call that darkness. Not light is darkness. And of the very truism that you see represented there with that illustration in John chapter 1 is that the darkness, you know, various translations put it, could not understand it, but it's more like could not overcome it. Because why? What is darkness? The absence of light. You know, you see with the, one of the plagues in Egypt, that darkness was something that could be felt. So that was something that was more than just not light. That was like the uh, snuffing out of light. So that was something very specific, and that was something that God sent, was the snuffing out of light in a particular area. But in the general scheme between you know, God and not God, there is nothing that can snuff out the light of the creator of heaven and earth. So thus, we are just left with light and not light. And that light of the world that's coming in keeps shining brighter and brighter until there are no shadows, no more dark corners anymore. So that when we eventually see the, the day of the Lord, it talks about a day of darkness and smoke. But it is what comes with the Lord and then what is left behind. What is the description that we see at the end of Revelation of the city of God? There is no night because the dwelling place of God is there. So that's one of the pictures that in the world, light has come into the world, and that which is not light will retreat from it. So those are some of the, the key highlights of this particular passage. So we are going to skip down into this particular passage that we are working at today, which is Shabbat Shavah. Shabbat Shavah, or the Shabbat of restoration, the Shabbat of return. It is uh, commonly the Shabbat that comes between uh, Yom Turah, also called Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. So that one in, in between there. And some of the the passages that are common as the parallel passage or the, or the Haftarot, plural of Haftarah, those are uh, basically Hosea 14, uh, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, and Joel 
chapter 2, verses 15 through 27. So on Yom Teruah, we uh, talked a bit about that last passage in Joel chapter 2, so we'll just we'll hit it briefly, but we'll be taking a look at the other two passages, specifically on Hosea. Hosea chapter 14, which caps off the end of uh, this relatively short prophetic book here. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we again say, Our God, to the works of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take roots like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will rise again and they will uh, blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let them know them. The ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them but transgressors will stumble in them. So starting out first here, are some key phrases right at the beginning. Uh, for you is stumble because of your iniquity. And then further on with the response, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. So that is the response to this turning back, this finally of the learning the lesson now just pulling back a little bit into this particular book this particular book is the setting of it as you see in chapter one is looking at the northern kingdoms that are about ready to get crushed by the kingdom of assyria but the perspective of it is also from the southern kingdoms so even though the setting is in the northern kingdoms this is really a lesson for the southern kingdoms because you see a similar thing. Um, one of the things that the book of Hosea is, is uh, famous for, some people say infamous for, is this thing between the prophet Hosea told to uh, marry an adulterous woman. Now, and then having these, these children um, and the children of the relationships, but then also adopting them back in. And that being a lesson for what happens to people that were cast off, not my people, and then called my people again. So that is one of the settings of the book. But one of the big pictures that you have in there is not of only the 
exposing the shame, exposing the shame of what has happened with the relationship, this image that's shown there between um, the prophet and his wife, and a picture of what has happened between the kingdom of heaven and Israel, and that relationship, and how that relationship has gone downhill, because you see a similar thing that shows up in the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel also has a very similar picture of these, and there, in that ca- case, it's the picture of two sisters. You know, one uh, the northern and one the southern, and a very similar thing. Of their, you should learn, <laughs> you should learn uh, the lesson from the older sister, there being the northern kingdom. But no, don't learn the lesson of the northern kingdom. But again, that prophet also sees like. You know, Hosea is kind of picturing this time right here in the in the time period of the loss of the northern kingdoms, and then Ezekiel's right down to the pretty much the exile starting for the southern kingdom. So you've got those bookends there of telling pretty much the same message of realizing how you got here and what the road back actually is. And another key passage you'll see in there is, I will heal their apostasy, and I will love them freely. So one of the key things to look at first off is, I will heal their apostasy. Now, that's the interesting thing of like apostasy and also repentance, and they're all coming from the same word. There are variations of shuv, which makes it quite sometimes challenging you'll see some of the translators notes about well what where is it do we call this a restoration do we call this a return uh do we call this repentance what what are we what are we calling this and a lot of it has to do with the context of it so some variations on the verb shuv and a very interesting comment in here from the theological word book of the old testament is a better than any other verb, it, referring to the verb shuv, combines in itself the two requisites of repentance, to turn from evil and to turn to good. So that's a very interesting picture when we see how shuv is used throughout the Bible, that there is that step process to turn what? To turn from evil, but then turn to good. Now you might remember we brought this up last time around with the parable that Yeshua told of the guy who had the evil spirit in his house. And he threw the evil spirit out. Then the evil spirit went and found, hey, the place where I started from, it's then the one that was there. But then he got seven evil spirits that were worse than the one that was there before and they went in and the punchline of that parable is what that it was a great party the more the merrier right no the situation at the end was worse than when it started because why the first part of the shuv was followed turn from evil you throw out the spirit but what what about the other part of it the second step the second step of it was to turn to good. So it's kind of, kind of like uh, what, what can happen uh, for sometimes the uh, 
cartographically challenged to maybe heading off in a given direction and realize, uh-oh, I'm going the, right, the wrong way. So then they, you just turn the wheel. Okay, you've turned away from the way that was going the wrong way. But if you're not following along where the direction you should be going, what have you accomplished? You've turned away from that bad direction, but turned to what? Another bad direction that's not headed the direction that you need to be going. So thus, you need to steer toward the good. So another, uh, so some illustrations of the variations of this word. Uh, shuv, shiva, which is uh, translated restoration. Shuva, which is word we're looking at here today. It can mean retirement. It can mean withdrawal, like a, an army that withdraws from the field. They shuva. Or it can mean a restoration. Someone is taken back and put back into the post that they had before. Now, here in this case, we're talking about apostasy. I will heal, heal their apostasy. That is meshuva. And that meshuva is used to talk about apostasy or turning to the bad direction. And shova is described as a back-turning or backsliding or going apostate, turning away from. So, again, you have these, these illustrations of it um, that you could be, the good, the good way that it goes is you turn from the evil and then you turn to the good. Now, the apostate, they're just turning away from the good. And there's lots of options once you turn away from the good. Because it's, you think about, um, uh, the, the old adage might be, all roads lead to Rome, but um, not if you're in Iceland. It, they don't. Yes. Or some other island, or in Hawaii, you're not going to be able to drive, not without a boat or a plane or something like that. You're not going to be able to make it to Rome. You need to know where you're going and how you're going to get there. So those are really the key things that you actually see in the prophets. And what the, we're capping out the book of Devarim or Deuteronomy, and that's one of the key things you see there. Moshe lays out in the beginning of the book to that second generation after the Exodus, okay, where are you going? The land. How are you going to get there? Wander. No, that's not how you get there. Don't get there just by wandering around. Now, the one thing that's laid out for the second generation is they could have gotten to the land very quickly. But it was a journey that maybe should have taken eh, maybe a month at most. A month at most. But ended up taking 40 years. And a whole generation that had to end to not continue further to make that journey happen. So, you need to know where you're going and you know how you're going to get there. So, one of the key things that, that leads back from this particular passage in Hosea, Hosea chapter 14, back to um, the passage that we're looking at today of Vayelach, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses uh, 6, 6 through 10, uh, talks about this. 
Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you and prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So this passage here we have about, moreover, um, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. So just like we saw in the previous Torah portion, where this was a message that was not only to that generation there, but the generations that were to come. That legacy of that generation was going to pass through to subsequent generations that come after them. So again, very important that the heat, so to speak, the spiritual fire of one generation needs to be kindled and contained and stoked in the next generation. Otherwise, they just turn off. They eventually run out of fuel. You might have probably noticed that either in your own family or seen that happen in others where they'll have basically one generation will maybe light a fire or maybe get the next generation warm. But then if it's not stoked or fed, it'll just die out over time. Yes. That same topic is what former President Reagan talked about with freedom is only one generation away from from, from, from extinction. Yes. The principle of if if you don't continue to instill the, 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 the critical importance of what is vital to survival, in your future, in your future children, it will die off. It takes only one generation to vanish. Yes. Now, with this instruction that we have here in Deuteronomy 30, you might look at it and say, okay, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. But wait a minute, didn't, you know, back in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, didn't they say to circumcise your heart, to cut off basically the dead parts of your heart within yourselves. So that was the instruction for the second generation heading into the land. Well, what happened between that and this? Maybe, maybe if you might recall, I know sometimes it's not so pleasant to think about, especially when they get down to the cannibalism and the curses that we just went through in the ending part of of uh, chapters in Deuteronomy, that the curses happen. And why do the curses happen? Because the people eventually veered off. They turned away from the good to something else. They turned away, and this nudging back is a harsh one. And we talked about last time is, well, why did 
this turning back? Why do these corrections have to be so harsh? And again, it's important to remember why these things come down and why correction is really needed in the house of God is that you're talking about a lifeline to all of humanity here. What legacy do they have? I mean, you think of all the other options besides what the kingdom of God is here and even the various ways that the kingdom of God has been, been corrupted or, as the prophets say, been blasphemed among the nations. There's lots of other options. But as Yeshua told in a parable about the narrow way, I mean, it's a, it's a multi-lane interstate heading away from the kingdom of God. But it's a, maybe a one-lane road. <laughs> one-lane road headed toward the kingdom of God. So very easy to veer off of it if you're not paying attention. You know, and taking that metaphor and extending it out further. So one of the things that is very interesting, because we, we often think that uh, the perception that, oh, well, this, this heart change that's needed, that's only something that showed up in the Christian, in the Christian era. This is something that is, is totally oblivious to any of our brothers and sisters in the, you could say, the house of Yehuda, among the greater Judaism and such. So I found it quite curious that in the Jewish study Bible, which tends to be quite leftist, has this very interesting observation on this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it says, The change in perspective suggests skepticism about the people's ability to affect such a change of heart independently. Still more skepticism is evident in the prophetic vision of a divine reprogramming of the human heart by inscribing the Torah upon it. And what references do you think they give? Yeah, we call them the New Covenant, the New Covenant prophecies. So this you know, wheel realignment that's needed to get the steering of Israel back onto the road so it keeps veering off <laughs> to the left or to the right, <laughs> that this counsel to cut off the parts of the society that, that keep having a problem I keep keep thinking every, every time I think about the having a spiritual wheel alignment makes me think again back to high school. I don't know what, what all these things happened in high school. I mean, I thought I was just so wise. I can't believe I was so stupid. But um, my the the first car that I ever had was this 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 great great Subaru station wagon, and uh, thing is is I I got my driver's license right when I. Turned 16, yeah, that was back in the... Of course, this is Alaska here, you know. Uh, no, you know, you, your first license is not riding a moose. Uh, it's actually, you can drive cars there. But I happened to get my license in the middle of wintertime. So um, not a great combination for that. So uh, one of the things that's known about in the wintertime is icy roads, and with the icy roads, one thing is that uh, sometimes you're your traction doesn't work as well as it probably should on, on pavement. So 
I was making a left turn and didn't quite get there and got broadsided by traffic coming the other direction. Well, it was a bad thing because I would have made the turn if it was dry pavement. But I'm thankful that it wasn't dry pavement because I got hit at like 60 miles an hour. So it was like, poof. So I was like hit and spinning on the ice or around all over Hill and Dale. But what that did was, um, you know, the Subarus have their rear suspension is an A-arm. So it's not like an axle. They're just like an A-arm. So they're connected to the frame. And like, and like an A, looks like an A. And the drive shaft, in this case, was a four-wheel drive. So it got bent a little bit, a wee little bit. Now, that was not noticeable in the wintertime because um, I just was in a perpetual fishtail, you know, throughout the, the entire wintertime because, you know, it was like, I, I had my friends that would drive with me and they would get seasick. For me, I, I didn't pay any attention to it, but they were like, oh man, I got to pull over because it was, it was really bad. Well, come summertime, then it, uh, <laughs> it turned into, from official, um, you know, to the point of where it sounded like a helicopter. So, um, I had to deal with it in the summertime because it was no longer something that I could just ignore anymore. So it went from just a perpetual fishtail to actual something that would <laughs> destroy the tires and uh, who knows what else here pretty quickly. But one of the key things of that alignment is that it just took a wee little bit. When they went in and they measured it, it was off by just an unbelievable small amount. An unbelievable small amount. So much so that my, um, one of my older stepbrothers just took a sledgehammer, took it out, and took a couple good whacks at it, and it was back into alignment again. That's all it took was a couple of good whacks. So in a sense here, we're, we're, when we're reading this passage, we are looking at a, uh, the, the heavenly sledgehammer coming to give a, some good whacks onto Israel to get its alignment back into gear. But the key thing is, is that if you are in, to take this metaphor and, and beat it with an even bigger sledgehammer, well, what if you're the suspension arm here? How would you feel like being hit by a sledgehammer? Not fun. No. No, it, it's not fun at all. Unless you know why you're being hit with the sledgehammer. So it's very interesting. You think about like, like when you see the, with the prophets, how do you read the prophets? Do you read that as a, how did I get into this mess? Or the, why does God hate me thing? Why is all this bad stuff happening to me? So that's one of the key things that we've covered before with the prophet, uh, prophet, well, I guess you could say Prophet a certain degree, but the apostle uh, Yaakov or James in the first chapter, one of the things he talks about in the first chapter is that you should seek wisdom when you are facing trials of many kinds, because this, these trials develop what? Perseverance and develops 
character one step at a time down to the part where it says that you are perfect, lacking nothing. And you are to seek wisdom so that you are not just tossed back and forth because these, you know, tossed through life wondering why these sledgehammers keep hitting you all the time instead of finding out, well, maybe the sledgehammers are hitting me for a very good reason. Yes. That's how you strengthen it. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, the, that, and it leaves a permanent mark, which is the whole point of it. You don't forget it. So you, you got bent one way. Well, to bend you back, you're cold working it, so strengthen it. But you never actually return completely because there's the extra stress inside the metal. As opposed, you won't forget it. So you have, <laughs> now have what we call wisdom. And you can withstand a stronger force the next time. Hopefully. Unless you break. <laughs> then there's other problems. But it, those sledgehammers, those events, yeah, they are struggles. But you're designed to have a permanent mark from them, <clears throat> which is useful to you. You become old and gnarled, and your memory does, your, 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 your history, the stories you got that you can share, share how you got all these kinks and bends and tweaks mm. and smash marks along the way. <laughs> yes. So, one of the things, the difference between Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30 was that the counsel to do the instructions back in Deuteronomy 10 of cutting away the stuff that should have been left behind in Egypt, the old way of life, the life of slavery, that wasn't taken care of. But rather than, you know, cutting away the old way of life, you basically, you know, um, did some surgical augmentation to add on the slavery parts from other nations around, not just Egypt, but also in Canaan. So in that way of life, you know, we think about if you think about people who have been wanting to walk away from some slavery behavior. Well, what do they do? Do they cut that part of their life off? Or do they just drag it around with them in a suitcase and kind of then bolt on some other slavery behaviors on top of it? Or do you just flail from one slavery behavior to another? Or do you seek to be delivered from these various lands of slavery? What we celebrate every time Pesach comes around. It's not just the freedom from slavery of people thousands of years ago. It is the freedom from slavery for us today. Our own slavery, our own Egypt that we have been delivered from. So around Passover time, the message is freedom, testimony at the mountain, meet who God is, and then say, okay, where do you want to go from here? Do you want to go to the land? Or do you want to go back to the land of the, what, the leeks and the onions and all that great, wonderful stuff, the that really wasn't so great when you really look at things in the big picture, the long-term picture. So what you see between Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30 is that this would take a new desire for God's ways, a new heart. That it would take new motivation that we call a new spirit. 
something that would move us forward. It would take a, a new deal, a new covenant. And that this bond would be based on knowing God fully, just as we also have been fully known. And what the Apostle Paul riffs on there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. So, this passage, just as a great refresher of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, I took them by the hand, although I was a husband to them out of the land of Mitzrayim. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Hallelujah. So that's one of the great promises that we have with this new covenant, this new heart and this new spirit, the new, um, your new way of viewing life and your new way of moving forward in life. So when we look at this last part of the uh, chapter 14 of Hosea, verses 8 and 9, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Now it is very interesting that this is the way it ends. And based on the entire book and the extended metaphor there of the life of Hosea with the wife that was unfaithful yet redeemed back after she faced shame, then you have these children, and they're described as, you know, not my people. <laughs> not, not a great story. But what is it, how does that story end? Shuva. It is a restoration. It is the bringing back. So there may be a lot of meshuva in the middle of, a, of apostasy, of the turning away from the right path. But there was the turning back, the turning away from the turned away path, so to speak, you might say repentance, the turning from the evil, and then turning to the good, and that's how it ends. Because when it talks about for the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the transgressors will stumble in them. Now that's very interesting because a lot of people have taken this kind of two different ways. One way you could take it is when you look at the whole book of Hosea, it could be in a similar way to the way the 
Apostle Yaakov puts it there in James chapter 1, that if you do not seek wisdom, why you keep getting hit by the sledgehammer from heaven and you don't realize that this is to realign you, to realign the people of God, to go in the right direction, then what? You say, why does this keep happening to me? Or as it's mentioned in uh, earlier on in chapter 13 of Hosea, basically the nations will look at this pounding of the sledgehammer from heaven upon Israel and go, God hates you. Why are you continuing down this path? So do you believe it? Do you believe the scorners who just say, hey, it seems like heaven has it out for you. Why do you want to keep going in this path? Or do you take it like the Masa Meribah question back at Exodus 17? And you say, is God with us or not? Don't know. Do you notice where the trajectory is going? With like the manna, the Red Sea. Those things would kind of indicate, yeah, God is with us. But there's some difficult things that have happened along the way. You know, the getting thirsty, you know, then the the snakes. Snakes just didn't come for no reason. Very interesting thing is to see the perspective that perhaps the the snakes were always there but then kept away. So one way to look at it is the snakes were let in. Another way is that the snakes were sent in. Whichever way you look at it, it was a time of adversity. So which way do you look at it? Do you look at it like, why does heaven hate me? Or do you say, okay, I think I need to change direction. As you know, the Proverbs say, the, the wise man accepts correction. What is, what is the opposite to that? If the wise man accepts correction, then what does the fool in the, in the biblical sense, fool being you know, a person who is um, headed headlong toward the not God direction, which in the grand scheme of things is headed toward destruction. If the wise person accepts correction, then what does the fool in the biblical sense accept? I believe the term is full speed ahead and blank the torpedoes. <laughs> <laughs> that is where it came from. Yes, I like that. Fool speed ahead, yes. So you got insanity speed and fool speed. Yeah, those are fool speed would be if. Yes. Yeah, full speed is beyond ludicrous speed. Because, you know, the wise person would have, once you hit ludicrous speed, go, okay, yeah, this is just going ridiculous, especially if, you know, you're, you're putting the Jado rocket onto your car and seeing if you can uh, set a new land speed record. <laughs> Except um, that will only send you headlong right into the side of a mountain, sadly. But... One of the things that you can see from the fool's speed through life is that you don't even see that you've taken this metaphor even from signs, saying this road bridge out, the road out signs, all the warning signs saying 
this road is not going to go continue on. It's not going to take you to where you think you're going to go. But you just plow right through them and just keep going. You avoid all notice of the warning signs and just keep headlong right along. And that is the warning of the prophets to Israel. This particular prophet and all the prophets after. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, it's like nobody, nobody is going down the road to destruction on purpose. I mean, they're all marching down this road of destruction. In the meantime, shouting hallelujah and praise the Lord. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things is, yes. Yes. For the, for the ones that might think that this is a, a way that uh, leads to life, leads to something that's nice, to at least leads to the not painful way of life, okay, you might get that for a time. But where is the actual path going to go? And especially with the testimony like we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, is that it's not just for you. It is for the generations that come after you. That's what the important part is. Because you can live your life up just fine and burn yourself out. You know, burn up your life living crazy. But what about any other generations that come after you? What are you going to pass on to them? Yes. Well, the... That, that's an interesting point that they point out that, that even there's an old saying, I can't remember who said it first, I've forgotten, but that no one, even evil people, don't think they're evil. I mean, evil people think they're good. I mean, Hitler didn't think he was evil, he thought he was doing good. Uh, Stalin didn't think he's evil, he thought he was doing good. Mao didn't think he was evil, he thought he was doing good. Even evil, so to know what you're doing, good or bad, the only option is compare it to something that is already accepted as good or accepted as bad. So as long as you're willing to compare, is it life, life unexamined is unworth living? I hate the mm. exact phrase, but as long as you're willing to compare, you can distinguish, is this a good way or not? Mm. As the point says, for the ways of the Lord are right, i.e., Compare them to the ways yes. of the Lord. Do they compare? Do they match up? Or do they not match up? That's really one distinction because you can easily be misled. All right, a, 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 a smooth-talking politician or a good car salesman, they, they can mislead you to things you don't want because you didn't compare it or didn't have to, something to compare it to. Mm. So it's, it's an important thing that you have to be willing to, if you're going to follow what is fair or just, you think, in your, in your own eyes, Compare it to what you think already is fair and just. It doesn't match. Now, here's a drawback. What if your comparison is, is error? Mm. If what you are comparing to you think is good, this is an acceptable thing that is good, and you're comparing to you're matching it, but if I, what you're comparing to, that also is bad. So you have to find a, a thing, in this case, ways of the Lord, but something which you can compare to that you know mm. it is a standard that works are as acceptable as opposed to some other standard you chose. If Mao said, I did everything right, just like Hitler did, I did a good job. Okay, well, he was comparing Hitler, and, the, and he matched it really, really well. Good job. But that doesn't mean his comparison was a good one, meaning that his, his, his template was skewed. 
Hence mm. that statement. Pamela, you have your hand up. It reminds me. It reminds me of when the night when we had a, a lunar eclipse. I, I heard uh, two cars coming up at one thirty in the morning. I live in the apartment complex, second floor. So um, I, I knew these people didn't live here or belong here. And I went down there and uh, confronted them. I walked out in front of their truck and they stopped and I was writing down their license number. <laughs> and uh, two of them came out and um, challenged me. And I just stood there like, what are you going to do? Hit an old woman? And they did not, of course. And I kept asking them questions, you know, like, what are you doing here? You know, it's 1.30 in the morning. Here you are with a truck that can hardly go because it was just going putt, putt and uh, trying to reason with them. And the only one that would make sense was the driver. And he told me, uh, uh, the car isn't insured. He said it was stolen. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, whoever got rid of this car was glad to get rid of it. And um, so I, I kept asking them questions <laughs> just to try to get them to respond. It's like, what are you doing here? What, what do you have planned? And so finally, I just turned around and went back inside. And um, I saw from upstairs that they had some kind of a box that gave their car a jump start again so they could cut, cut out of there. But then a few nights later, they came back and stole a a wheel off of one of the cars, probably thinking it was mine. So mm. these guys are just bent on a bad path. But, you know, if you try to mm. reason with them, uh, see how far you're going to get. But no, they were still bent on doing evil. Yeah, it's kind of a, a sad reality. That's why uh, some have advocated, uh, what do they call that, the um, broken window theory of policing that you try to bring the corrective measures in for even what seems like very small infractions because if you don't put up those warning signs to say hey you don't want to keep heading down this direction that people will just keep going and going and going that's why in the in the torah we've got that instruction about you know do not move your neighbor's boundary stones you have to realize where people's boundaries are and respect those people's boundaries and you don't extend expand your territory by moving their territory markers so that's one of the key key things in life about you know loving your neighbor as yourself is to you know realize where the extent of i mean that's one of territory ends and other people's territory begins i mean that's one of the things that we run into here in our particular time period right now is that there are people who are thinking that their territory extends far beyond their territory, but into your territory. So they have moved their boundary stones to inside of other people's territory for your own good, for the good of everyone, for the good of society. You know, we need to move your boundary stones in further because. You know, we can't have you with your territory expanding as far as it does. So, just like with people that need a nudge to get back onto the right path, there should be things for greater society and uh, also for those who are leaders as a nudge that, hey, your 
usurpation of other people's territory is unjust. So one of the things that people think about when you think about this time of year, and we're thinking about between the time of the calling for repentance and Yom Kippur, is that, oh, heaven is just being totally unreasonable with these requirements, these commandments, these instructions. You know, heaven is moving my boundaries in too much, requiring too much of me. So again, are we willing to take a look and say, well, why is it that heaven is using the proverbial sledgehammer to pound us into alignment? Or why is heaven, you know, they're sitting there with the boundary stones and saying, you know, your boundary really needs to be here. You've moved your territory, so to speak, into other people's territory, or you've moved it into God's territory, so to speak. So these things in this time of year is a good time to go back and reflect what are the boundaries of heaven? What are the boundaries that heaven says that we should have between ourselves and others? Have we gone over and been moving other people's boundary stones? And have we not been seen that other people are moving our boundary stones because within within families you probably have noticed the the whole thing of that people have not seen or not done the quote broken windows type of policing with their interpersonal relationships with people in their family for so long that the quote stupid stuff makes people just explode I mean, you see that happen so when, when, uh, when you talk about like um, uh, probate and, you know, estate attorneys and they get the family together and they're like a chair, a chair in somebody's estate and the siblings are just knocked down, drag out, fight, yelling, screaming at each other over a chair. It's not the chair. It is all the stuff over decades that they've encroached into each other's territory and not respected each other and not dealt with it, not said, ouch, ouch, that hurt. You know, we need to heal these things that are between us. So you let these things go for so long that just this, the stupid little things, you know, or in a marriage that... Um, Things are left to go so long that if the toilet paper is going one direction versus the other direction, suddenly, you know, you're throwing things at each other. Oh, wait a minute. Did the toilet paper cause this war inside the house? No. The chair didn't cause the problems between the siblings. No. It was all those things were just left unresolved. And that's what the key period of the time of repentance, whether you're talking about the whole 40 days, we're talking about the 10 days of awe, talking about the day of atonement itself. It's about the return and the restoration. And like we're seeing here with just the, the pure language of the Hebrew of shuv, to turn. Turn away from the evil, turn toward the good. You know, turn away from the, the bad thoughts and the bad, um, as the Apostle Paul puts it in the context of uh, matzod and unleavened bread. You know, about 
malice and wickedness. Get that stuff out and get in sincerity and truth. So these lessons that go from all these appointments throughout God's year are all about what? You know, we call it uh, Takun Olam, and it's considered to be this, this grandiose thing that involves all kinds of things involving recycling, or it's about mending relationships here on Earth. Because what happens if you mend relationships? Then maybe you mend families. Then you mend communities. Then you mend whatever your states, counties, whatever. You mend nations. And then between nations, those things can mend. But if you don't start with the very small things and the small relationships, it can metastasize very, very quickly. So go on to the section here of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Short little passage, but packs a punch. Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Yaakov of old. To Avraham which you swore to our fathers from days of old. So we see the key passages in this particular section. Pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. Now, think of that particular statement there. The remnant of his possession. Now, what is especially when we're talking about the prophets around the context of the exiles of Israel, what is the remnant? Survivors, those are the less bad of the entire uh, people. The ones, like you see, you read Ezekiel, and it talks about the remnants of those who are left, the ones that are following what God says. But you say, okay, even with that remnant, to refine that remnant more. And as you know, the Apostle Paul talks about it, it's like you know, refining gold in the fire. Just keep refining it. You know, it, can, it can work at one grade if you take out some impurities. But if you want the higher grade, then what do you have to do? Take out more impurities than if you want even higher grade beyond that, take out even more impurities. So if you want to keep refining it down, to just say, okay, well, the, all these people here who didn't drive off the cliff, well, then they must be the ones that totally have everything all together. Well, okay, maybe they were, and this proverbial thing, smart enough to hit the brakes before they went over the cliff, 
But does that say that they've got everything else figured out? No, it's like you just you made that decision, okay, we weren't going to totally go over the cliff. But you may have other issues. Other issues that need to be refined. As the passage continues on, that the Lord is doing this about passing over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession because he delights in unchanging love, or the chesed. He delights in chesed. That this loyalty, another good way to put that, is loyal love. Not just unchanging love, but loyal love. And this loyal um, we talk about loyalty, but loyalty that also has uh, compassion and concern upon it. And it talks about, he will tread our iniquities underfoot, cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Remember what we read in the New Covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31? That he will remember our iniquities no more. Remember them. No more. So the things that were against us taken away. Which reminds you of what? Colossians? The certificate of ordinances that was against us. He took that and nailed it to the cross. Apostle Paul is talking about the same thing that the prophets were talking about, that the New Covenant prophecy is talking about. The things that were against us, our iniquities, sins, transgressions, all of those things, gone. Yes. Larry. But that really turns out to be a one-time event. That was their, the things that you did before that and uh, that you did unwittingly. And they, because he said, if you, do, if you go sin again, after that, there's no more forgiveness. So it's not... One of, the, one of the, the key things in that passage is that if you turn away from this, and again, this is the context of it. The context is in Hebrews chapter 10. It's riffs at the beginning of it on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. So what is Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement? I mean, he's been talking about that for three, four chapters earlier, going all the way back to chapter 7 of Hebrews. And all that is about what? Yeshua, you know, the call of a Homer, if the, the high priest is able to bring this reconciliation, to bring this covering, to be the, the effectuator of this covering over sins, transgressions, and iniquities on Yom Kippur, then how much more is the Mashiach able to do that to take the promise of the new covenant that god will remember our iniquities no more and to bring that fully into effect so if you turn back from that what are the option you want to go in you want to go back to the pattern that moshe showed on the mountain you know that's like choosing a person's hologram over the person. The hologram does what? Reminds you of the person, represents the person, 
you know, can help illustrate the person, you know, can help, you know, moves the, move the person's image across time and space. But is the hologram the person? No. So the things related to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle, to the temple, are those the things? No, they are not. No, because that's what it talks about, uh, the pattern shown on the mountain. It's like, just like a hologram, you know, if it's a hologram of someone with an important message, okay, you're probably all thinking of that same sci-fi movie. You know, help me, you're my only hope. Okay, now that was a message across time and space. Was that mirror message? No. The message was essential. But was that the person? No. The Mishkan is a type, the pattern shown on the mount of the things, the important, the actual things. It is the message of the things, the important, essential things of what is in heaven but they aren't the things themselves so thus you know people always ask a question well what do we keep seeing in the prophets about these sacrifices coming back did the sacrifices ever cover sin no they never did they never will what are the offerings what are they yes they are the representation of the things going on within you, which is why you get those very startling comments that you see in the prophets, like Isaiah chapter 1, I hate your feasts. Yes, because of what was inside the people, and over lots of chapters of the book of Isaiah, he explains that. What was happening inside the people was poisonous. Just like in the book of Ezekiel. Did he hate the temple? No, he revealed through all kinds of various ways, even like, you know, digging through prophetically into the inside of the temple to show what was going on in there, and it was ugly. The inside of the temple was pagan. What the people were doing on the outside of the temple was pagan. Was the purpose of the temple pagan? No. The problem was what was happening inside the people that made them do that. That's what the problem was. Yes, Larry. Uh, what the, when he says you crucify Christ afresh? Yes. What is that? What is that? How does that work in that context? Well, it is you're you're saying that the whole purpose of the offering, as he goes through, like from chapter seven through chapter ten, he's talking about Day of Atonement, and then builds up to this crescendo and saying that there is this one special sacrifice that is the thing not the type it's not the mere type but it is the thing so if you reject that then what then are you calling for you're going back to the same system every year it's like okay we have to do this every year to kind of you know it's like getting your dare i say it your booster shot from heaven. Every year, you got to get the booster shot. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is saying, this is not the heavenly booster shot every Yom Kippur. This is a 
reminder once a year. It's on your calendar once a year to remind you of the thing that is happening. The thing that heaven is doing with earth. Don't miss the thing. And if you missed it, there's 66 books that talk about it. That is the thing that heaven is doing. The types are huge way markers, reminders. The Moedim, the appointed times of God, they're continual things on your calendar to keep reminding you of the things that is going on between heaven and earth. But don't think that just by doing what the pagans do, the right chant, the right time, in the right manner, in the right cadence, with the rattles, with the right you know, clothes, in the right place, with the right fire, and on 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 it goes. You know, don't think that that's how heaven works. Because that's how Canaan works. That's how Egypt works. That's how Babylon works. Assyria, Greece, on and on and on it goes. That's how those systems work. This is not what is revealed from heaven. Heaven reveals a completely different thing. It's like, okay, you will see this tent, building. You will see people dressed in a certain way, officiating in certain things. You bring certain items on certain days. But realize that this is all pointing you toward the thing, what heaven is doing with earth. They are not the thing in and of themselves. That's what the pagan world does, which is one of the things that's very interesting when you see in uh, the way Hollywood depicts things. It's very interesting how, how Hollywood depicts things because you will see in lots of types of entertainment where they're trying to depict the battle between good and evil and if they get into demons and such like that, it's what? You have the right incantation. Do you have the right stuff? You got the right powders, the right incense, the right candles, the right messages. If you get all the right stuff, then that will break the power. But for any sort of realistic representations of the true battles between heaven and the not heaven, called the demonic world, you'll see something quite different. It is that the power of the evil one cannot fight back against it. It is not about rattles or incantations or incense. It is about where true power is and what lesser power is. Yes. I believe C.S. Lewis did said so in his screw tape letters regarding that topic, that the <laughs> idea is to confuse or distract the individual such that they'll focus on those other, those other little things here or there as if they're the critical important component. And that would be the, uh, the goal or the objective in order to get them to distract us. They wouldn't focus on the actual important components. Talking to God. Yeah, I mean, you see something from Israel's history about the, the uh, copper bronze snake on the pole. An instrument of God. It itself became an idol later on in Israel's history. Because what was actually the lesson, and that was completely forgotten. Why did they need the snake to begin with? Because of what? The grumbling. 
against uh, the way God was doing it. Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. What was this malice, wickedness within the heart? That's what caused the issue with the snakes, which caused the pole as a representation of hate. So I hope when we come down to the find your way out of this. So I hope when we come down to the end of what we're looking at here today, that we see that this is hardly what you could say. Uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting way that uh, the the New Interpreter Study Bible puts this because we think, you know, as people might take a look at a passage like Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, and say that, uh, well, there is uh, something between the, quote, Old Testament and the New Testament. There is the Old Testament vindictive God. There is the New Testament, you know, sweet Jesus, you know. You know, fierce father, gentle Jesus. That myth that is there. But interestingly, this particular passage says, readers of verses 18 through 20 cannot fall into the common trap of envisioning that the God of the prophets is a vindictive judge, contrasted with the God of Jesus as a forgiving peacemaker. This prophet's God pardons sin and takes pleasure in showing compassion. The prophet reminds God of the ancient ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, expecting the same loyal kindness that they experienced. So, what we see is same God. The same God who has compassion in the, quote, New Testament is the same God who has compassion in the, quote, Old Testament. So, this is a good reminder that we have of that. So, lastly, we'll just do a reading through this because this was discussed on Yom, Yom Teruah, uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among all people say, Where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into the parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up. For it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain 
for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. So here you have the prophet talking to people in the context of the really looming exiles, but then looking to off into the future. And as we've seen going through Revelation, the, the picture of this pointing to the day of the Lord and this restoration coming in full, coming in full to the land and going from the land out to the entire earth as a consequence of that. So, again, when we see the corrections coming to our own lives, to our community, to our nation, we should look to see, oh, where have we gone off the path? Where do we get back on the path? Where should we turn away from evil, and how do we turn to good? And in the process, then, we move toward the heart of God. Because the promise here that you've had through so many prophets and apostles and through the Mashiach, that the heart of God is toward the people. Toward the people. Question is, is will we move away from our wrong path and to the right path and see that heaven has a plan for doing so? A change of heart and a change of spirit. Any last thoughts as we close out here today? All right, we'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you for giving us the testimony of your servants through such a long period of time. And Father, as Yom Kippur approaches, we just pray that you continue to show us, show everything about us, and reveal to us the paths of everlasting. Father, we thank you for having mercy on us. In the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info.